Welcome to the Baby Tribe. I'm Katie Mugan from NursingMama.ie, a paediatric and public health nurse and a lactation consultant with over 20 years experience. And I'm Afif Al-Kafash, a neonatologist and paediatrician and a lactation consultant with over 20 years experience in newborn care. And together, we are your hosts. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Baby Tribe podcast. Today is one of our special guest episode and I am so excited to actually hear what this guest has to say because it is all about sleep. Our guest is going to debunk a lot of the myths surrounding baby sleep. So Katie, I'm really excited about this interview, so take it away. Welcome back to this week's episode, and I'm delighted to be joined with Lindsay Huckway to chat all about infant sleep. Lindsay has over 20 years experience working with children, a nurse by profession, a paediatric and public health nurse, an IBCLC, author of five books, a PhD student, co-founder of the Holistic Sleep Coaching Programme, and last but certainly not least, a mother of two. Lindsay, you are so welcome today, and by the list of achievements mentioned above, you're also superwoman. Well, fortunately, I don't need a lot of sleep. So that's ironic, isn't it? (laughs) Well, you're starting off well anyway. So, Lindsay, I suppose starting out, I started following you a few years back when I had more and more clients looking for information on infant sleep and breastfeeding. And when I went looking for information, I found a lot of the uh, sleep consultants, the information they were offering just didn't sit right with me. And I found a lot of what they were preaching would in fact impact breastfeeding quite a bit. And then I stumbled across your page on Instagram and I found it amazing. I loved your approach to how you focused on attachment parenting. I love how inclusive you are to all parents. So really well done. I loved it. I suppose one topic I just want to bring up is what I find a lot of the time spoken about, even by healthcare professionals, family members to parents of newborns is if they start implementing practices really early on, it can lead to them achieving this like 12 hour sleep, the full night sleep that everyone wants and hopes for. And what I found myself over the years is that I find it is setting parents up for a lot of anxious, upsetting times when they just can't get their little ones to sleep that long. So I suppose what's your take on getting your baby to sleep those really long spells or when do you expect a baby to sleep? And I suppose just one thing is that we hear about self-settling and the, you know, putting them down drowsy but awake. And these kind of practices are what kind of is often recommended by people to get the baby to sleep these long. What do you think? Okay, well, I think there are about 11 questions disguised as one there but uh, but it's okay I, I I can I can work with it um I honestly I think the the sleep world especially on social media is I often describe it as like the wild west it's it's an unregulated soup of some misinformation some decent information some you know misappropriated information some, you know, misinterpreted statistics and research studies, and it all ends up in this horrible big melting pot that seems designed to confuse and bamboozle new parents, right? And I think one of the things that frustrates me most about this space is that one of the tactics used by a lot of mainstream sleep trainers is to essentially pathologize normal infant behavior. And we've We've seen that in lots of different industries. The formula milk industry are widely known for doing this in terms of 
pathologizing normal infant behavior to make people doubt their own milk supply. But it also happens in the sleep world as well. And people end up pathologizing things like babies not sleeping from seven till seven or babies not sleeping, you know, an uninterrupted stretch or babies not being able to self-settle, babies not being able to go down drowsy but awake, all of this stuff. And the thing that grinds my gears about it is that all of this is just normal infant behavior. But when you pathologize it, what that does is it makes vulnerable parents feel like there's a problem with their baby. And when there's a problem, people naturally and instinctively want to fix the problem. And who wouldn't, right? Because we all want the best for our kids. And if we're told that unless your baby is sleeping like this, there's a problem and you need to fix it or, you know, it's all going to be a disaster and they're never going to sleep well and they're going to be in your bed forever and they're not going to do well in school and they're going to have behavior problems and it's linked with X, Y and Z conditions and blah, blah, blah. You can see why the sleep industry is a multi-million dollar space because, of course, when you pathologize normal infant behavior, because most infants are normal, that means most infants, therefore, could be diagnosed with a sleep problem that requires a fix. Now, the, the difficulty here is that it's really difficult to fix normal. And that means when you can't fix it yourself, i.e. when you put your baby down drowsy but awake and it doesn't work, that means you need to reach out for professional sleep support and cue the cha-ching, cha-ching nature of the sleep industry. And this is what irritates me because rather than empowering parents, helping them to understand what's normal and pick apart the parts that you might be able to have some control over or make some improvements with or make more sustainable, we're actually making parents fearful and worried about things they don't need to be worried about. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think definitely they target vulnerable parents in those early days and weeks when they think that, you know, babies should go down. And I think, you know, even going back of holding your baby and cuddling them in those early days and weeks, I feel sorry for parents not encouraged to do that because the window of opportunity, it, it goes, passes by so quickly that when we focus on trying to achieve sometimes the unattainable, we miss out on all that lovely bonding time where we get to snuggle up on the couch and just hold them close because soon they won't want that. Yes. And it, it makes parents feel guilty. They, they feel like they're doing something slightly deviant that's setting themselves up for misery and failure down the line. Uh, rather than thinking, do you know what, is this working right now? Is this working today? Am I enjoying this today? Fine, let's just roll with it. And if at some point in the future, this becomes difficult or unsustainable, I can deal with it then. But instead, they're thinking, oh, no, I mustn't enjoy this guilty snatched moment of snuggling my baby. I've got to stop doing this instinctive, natural, enjoyable thing, because it might make my life a nightmare in three months or six months or two years. And it, it's just, it robs parents of the joy of living in the moment and also investing in those early weeks, months and, and years that you can't get back. And I suppose a lot of what I do comes from my own feelings of um, not having enjoyed some of the early weeks of my 
first daughter's life when I was worried that I was messing it all up and I was getting it wrong and she wasn't sleeping and it was all my fault. And unless I did X, Y and Z, it was all going to go to pieces. And yet the things that I was being told to do didn't sit well. I didn't want to do them, Um, but it left me feeling oh, I'm I'm stuck then because the thing I've been told to do, I can't do. And the thing that I therefore am defaulting to, I've been told is a completely terrible idea. So where does that leave me? And, you know, I think, Lindsay, you say it so well that many parents, I think when things aren't working and they start looking for answers elsewhere, you'll often find that they feel like it, they're the issue, that they have created this little person that won't sleep or they're lacking the skill to help them achieve the full night's sleep. And I think that's where the some of the sleep industry really does kind of cha-ching in on their vulnerabilities. I think it's quite upsetting when you think of if parents understand normal newborn behaviour of what they need in that moment, then it would result in a much easier and happier time. I think always when you look at parents trying to achieve better sleep and everything else, sometimes when they just, if a parent just says, I'm letting go, and I've, I've seen this on your page a lot where you say, some Sometimes in that moment, you just have to say, we're just going to go with it. And when they do that, it's like a weight has been lifted off their shoulders and suddenly they can actually enjoy it a little bit more. And then I think they maybe cope better with maybe the lack of sleep, but because they're not trying to fix something all the time, that it actually works a little bit better. Yeah, well, I think I think two things happen when they do that. One is actually that there's some evidence to suggest that when we fixate on things that we can't change, when we worry about things that aren't really things, when we overanalyze, when we second guess, when we're fretting about how the day is going and and whether we're going to get any sleep and how we're going to achieve sleep and all of that stuff, it actually makes our experience of parenting more fatiguing. So worrying about sleep actually makes you feel more tired. Worrying about whether you're screwing it up makes you feel more tired. It makes you feel more anxious. We know that anxiety can decrease the quality and quantity of your sleep as well. So the first thing that happens when you let it go is you actually feel less tired and the quality of your sleep improves. First thing. The second thing that happens is that because babies are amazing and competent and perceptive little humans, they understand where we're at. They might not know why we're stressed out about something, but they are attuned to our emotional state. And therefore, if we are kind of stressed and anxious about how they're sleeping or not sleeping, the chances are that actually they're going to be thinking, there's something not quite right here. I'd better not completely stand down because there's something I need to be on alert about. They might not you know, attribute it to anything particular, but they know that we're rattled by something. But conversely, the great news there is that if we just let it go, if we just relax, the amazing part is that they go, oh, cool, mum's all right. Dad's dad's chilled about this. We, we can just snuggle down, we can settle in. And actually, babies begin sleeping better as well. So the reason I say just let it go isn't because I'm being lazy and I can't be bothered to provide an elaborate sleep solution. It's because it actually is physiologically sensible to just chill out because it makes the parent feel better and it makes the baby sleep better as well. So the very act sometimes of making a conscious choice to do nothing, and it's a positive choice. It's not, oh, stuff it, nothing's working. We're just going to give up. It's very much a positive, right? This is the season I'm in. 
I'm just going to go with it. I'm not going to overanalyze. I'm going to do what works in the moment, fly by the seat of my pants and it'll be okay. Actually, what happens is the, the experience of parenting becomes less stressful and sleep spontaneously often improves. I appreciate not for everybody, but actually for a large proportion of people, they find that the number of comments that I've had on on various posts where people have said, I've let it go and it's all slowly getting better. Uh, you know, it, it's a fact, isn't it? it? It just sometimes works to not overthink it. <laughs> and I suppose one thing I, I know in a lot of the literature, it, people state about what age should we expect them to sleep the night or what age is for them right? And I will see on Instagram and posts like that, some people will say like from three months, a baby can sleep the night, like 12 hours. From six months, 100% your baby should be sleeping the night. And often when they go to see medical professionals and they say, God, the baby's not sleeping, they'll get kind of misinformation and then it brings about stresses. Like what age do we expect children of most age range, like of different age ranges to be able to achieve that? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's not one that I have a succinct answer for, as you might expect. If you've ever spent five minutes talking to me, there's never a succinct answer because it's there's nuance here, isn't there? The truth is that, you know, I, I have so much sympathy for healthcare professionals because they're not taught about normal infant sleep. Um, the, 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 the information they're provided is patchy and inconsistent. It often depends on who's teaching them, to be perfectly honest. So this is not about slating healthcare professionals. I am one anyway. So I, I kind of, I know from, I know you guys are as well. So, it, you know, we know from the inside that this stuff is not taught and it's certainly not taught well or, or um, consistently. But the truth is that, you know, that there are some old papers that keep on doing the rounds and people misinterpret them. So for example, there's a, a paper by uh, Moore and Ucko, which was published in 1957. And until fairly recently, this was like the the gold standard paper that provided the evidence for when infants can be expected to sleep through the night. But if you read that paper, yes, it does say that um, the majority of those infants started sleeping through the night at three months. But there's two really important pieces of information that are left out on the so what piece of that um, paper. The so what is, well, sleeping through the night was actually defined as five hours straight, number one. And number two, they also found that by six months, most of the babies that had been sleeping five hours straight at three months resumed more frequent night waking. And conveniently enough, that part of the information is never translated quite so well um, in mass media. So that's one paper. Um, another paper recently by Maria Panestri and colleagues found that only 6% of six-month-olds sleep six hours straight. So all the sixes, okay? <laughs> if, you're, if you're superstitious, look away now. But 6%, that means 94% of six-month-olds are not even sleeping six hours straight. And that wasn't every single night. That was um, th I think that was three nights out of five. I would need to check the papers. So don't quote me on that. But it wasn't even every single night and had been for many, many nights. It was more often than not, they slept six hours. So there's that paper that, you know, there are other papers like the um, the Mari Heising and colleagues study, which was a study of 55,000 six to 18 month olds. And that paper basically found that 
over time, the number of night wakings reduces. So the six month olds were waking between one and three times a night. And by the time it got to about 18 months, only about 25% of all of the children um, were still waking at least once a night. So the number of night wakes reduces over time, but certainly 55,000 children waking about three times a night at six months, that's not sleeping through the night either. And then um, Amy Brown and Victoria Harry's study of six to 12 month old babies, they also found a very similar statistic to Mari Heising. They found that about 70% of children between six and 12 months were waking approximately one to three times. I think the average was two. So clearly children don't sleep through the night at six months. And I, I remember as a health visitor, very clearly being told babies sleep through the night by about six months. I, this is nonsense. It doesn't actually come from anything. And it doesn't matter, you know, how many times I dig into this, there isn't really any robust empirical data to back that up, I hate to say. <laughs> That's amazing, because I wish that it was actually spoken about more. When you put it down with the results of those two studies, that's phenomenal. Yeah, they're not sleeping through the night. I also think we'd need to take into account that they're individual little people and we've got different personalities at play. I can definitely say out of four kids, my first did sleep the night. Like he put himself into his own routine, nothing. He was breastfed on demand. And he is still to this day completely laid back. And I barely have, I have to drag him out of bed every morning. And not one of the other three followed suit. I say my fourth, I I actually think I started following you closely around and say the time I had Jack. And I learned to let it go. I kind of was like, you know, he started off really well and then it all kind of went to pot. But I do remember just going, do you know what? I'm just going to go with it. I popped him in. We slept really well. And I'd say that was probably the same way all the way up till about a year and a half too. And then he just took off. Then he went into his own bed. He slept the full nights. Well, I say full nights, you know, he could appear in the middle of it. He goes back. But for me, that's the full night. We all got sleep. And I think it's about changing your expectations Um, to meet the needs of that little person that's sitting in front of you makes a big difference. I love nerding into this a little bit, but, you know, I love looking at... You're just like a thief, so. What's that? Sorry, I said, you're just like a thief. We call him, he does his nerdy segment. You're very closely linked that way with your your PhDs (laughs) and your education. Whenever you look at population level data, you have to acknowledge the outliers and the the normal distribution of of all of that data. And when I'm talking about, you know, the average being one to three, of course, there's a huge range there. We're talking about a range of probably zero to eight. Um, it's just that most of them are clustered into the middle of the bell curve, aren't they? And and the trouble with that normal average mean-based data is that people look at the mean and they panic if they don't fit that. And so if you're the parent of the little one who wakes six times a night, you might then be persuaded to think that, oh, well, okay, really, that's too many times that they're waking. They should only be waking one to three times. But actually, the reality is that there is there is a range and there are children that are going to wake no times a night and there are going to be children that wake eight times. Now, we should always be mindful that Sometimes there is an underlying reason for more frequent night waking, and that's absolutely legitimate to kind of explore, you know, those underlying health, feeding, uh, you know, other concerns that might be leading to more frequent wake-ups. But by and large, most children are going to be waking up more frequently, not because they have a red flag, but because they just are an outlier and they just fall to the, 
you know, more to the right of the bell curve. That's all. Um, and it's really important when, we, when we're thinking about sleep needs, whenever we're talking about anything that has an average range, we need to bear in mind the, you know, the low sleep need children, the high sleep need children that don't fit that kind of um, average range that is often the one that's presented in social media in particular. Definitely. Um, And with regards to, I suppose, the four month sleep progression, I'm sure you hear about this all the time, where you have a baby that is generally sleeping pretty good and then it all goes haywire. And sometimes I think if you're at those baby groups, you know, you'll hear parents saying, so how are they sleeping? And they'll say, oh, not too bad. You give it time, wait till the four month hits and it's all going to go haywire. What's your advice on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm fairly well known for hating that phrase. I hate it. Um, partly because I'm a pediatric nurse and a regression is a loss of a previously acquired skill. It's a major developmental red flag. And I hate the misuse of that word. That's the first thing. I appreciate that in terms of behavior psychology, regression usually means a move towards a previous developmental stage that might feel like it's gone backwards. But do you know what? I like to just keep things like this simple. Essentially, sleep can become collateral damage whenever children are learning loads and loads of new stuff because we can only deal with so many things at one time. We also need to bear in mind some of the um, the physical developmental changes that are going on at about four months. So children are learning to roll. They're learning to transfer from um, from you know hand to mouth they are you know perhaps babbling they are you know developing more core muscle strength they are more alert they've got reduced sleep needs um, all sorts of things are happening at about that age which might potentially lead to more frequent wake-ups at night they also get more distractible don't they with their feeding and sometimes that plays out in reverse cycling so there are a whole number of different reasons why sleep might appear to go completely down the pan at about four months. But I would always start by reminding people that their sleep needs might have changed because the amount of hours of sleep they require drop by about two hours over 24 hours um, between about three and four months. And if little ones are being coaxed and urged into longer naps in the day in that mistaken belief that sleep breeds sleep, it doesn't, by the way, then what can sometimes happen is that you pay for those longer or prolonged um, or facilitated naps in the day with a more fragmented, dodgy night. And so, you know, you, you need to start again by going back to those Um, average ranges and thinking, well, you know what, if they're getting 16 hours of sleep in 24 hours, it's possible that that's why my baby's fragmented um, sleep at night is is getting worse, because actually they're, they're having access to too much sleep opportunity, and they simply don't have the sleep pressure required to be able to sleep for longer stretches at night. It's actually pretty simple. And then beyond that, it's about looking at um, you know, what your little one is doing in the day. So when people say, oh my gosh, is there a five month sleep regression? Is there a six month sleep regression? This is, this is why I hate the term because I hate any idea that these things happen at set ages. It's much more accurate to just say, look, do you know what? Sleep might go to pieces anytime there's something major developmentally going on. And just forget what age they are. Like they could be two months, they could be seven and a half months. 
I don't really care. It's more about looking at the child and understanding, do you know what? They've got a lot going on right now. No wonder they need a bit more reassurance. And that's what it is. If they're waking more frequently, it's because they're going, help. I'm feeling a bit out of whack here because there's so much going on and, you know, I'm learning to roll and my tummy muscles are hurting or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to get that stupid dangly zebra to do what I want it to when I'm lying on my playmat and it's doing my head in. I often say that the work of childhood is, is play and that means when they've had a, a, a long day playing, they've actually had a hard day at the office. We might think, well, what have you got to be stressed about, kiddo? You literally sit around getting cuddled and fed and loved and you play all day what's there to be stressed about well that's because actually you know working things out figuring things out um, it requires a huge amount of mental energy and processing power and that can lead to um, a a sense of dysregulation which requires co-regulation from an attuned caregiver to be able to get that baby back to a state of calm where they can actually drift off to sleep because you can't sleep with your foot on the gas pedal. And that means that unless babies are relaxed and um, settled, there's no way they're going to sleep anytime soon um, until somebody comes along to soothe them, which brings us back full circle, really, doesn't it? Responding to the baby's needs. Yeah. And I suppose, lastly, a little bit on, I suppose, weaning. I know a lot of, I suppose, as IBCLCs, we deal a lot, not only with starting out in the early days of breastfeeding, but on the other side, when parents sometimes kind of, as the child gets a bit bigger, they're just burnt out. They've kind of hit the point where they find, I suppose, breastfeeding gets blamed for a lot in that uh, you'll find that people will say, oh, if you weren't breastfeeding, you your baby would sleep the night. And I think it's like a, fu- a kind of bit of a myth as well. Like if we just remove the breast altogether, this baby's going to sleep a full night. Now, I'm saying that sometimes it may work, but a lot of the time it can bring an awful lot more stresses. What do you think? Yeah, well, so this is where I often approach this with more of my IBCLC hat than my sleep hat, actually. This, the sleep piece is, look, feeding is one way of responsively parenting your little one. If you weren't feeding back to sleep, you would probably be cuddling, rocking, you might use a a pacifier. There are lots of things that we do to respond to our little ones. Feeding is just one. If you take feeding away, you're probably going to have to replace it with something else. And that something might be just as time consuming or difficult in some ways as feeding. So from a sleep piece, it often doesn't immediately improve sleep. The exception to that would be with toddlers. Sometimes when children get to a kind of verbal stage, they do sometimes um, start sleeping better. Once that limit is in place and they get it and they're like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm not very happy about having the boob taken away, but okay, whatever. The IBCLC piece around this is I very much believe in bodily autonomy and it is not my job um, as uh, as an IBCLC or a sleep advocate to dictate how long anybody should breastfeed for. Absolutely not. If you want to stop breastfeeding at two days, two weeks, two months, whatever, that's not my business. Provided you've made an informed choice and you feel comfortable with it and it's right for you, absolutely not a problem at all. And that includes night weaning young babies. What I What I have an issue with is people suggesting that that's going to improve sleep or that that has to be done to improve sleep or um, that that's going to be some sort of fix. 
that's not okay. But it's always okay to put limits in place to protect bodily autonomy. I think, you know, where it gets difficult is people want to know how to make that easier or quicker or kinder or smoother or whatever. And I don't have a a great solution for that because it's really difficult for a little one to do without a way of being parented back to sleep that is really soothing and lovely and nurturing. And even if you replace it with something that's soothing and lovely and, and, and nurturing, they still sometimes will say, basically, in baby speak, I'm not very happy about that, mummy. <laughs> I liked it better the way it was going before. I was perfectly all right with you putting a boob in my mouth every 45 minutes. I, I, I had no issue with it. <laughs> and I want it to go back to that position. So it's a really difficult one. Um, I, you know, I, I will always support people to, you know, make the feeding decisions that are right for them. Well, Lindsay, you have been absolutely amazing. We just want to thank you for joining us, for sharing your information and knowledge. You are a godsend um, to listen to. We love your approach. And uh, for everyone, please keep following Lindsay Hookway. Thank you very much. When choosing your antenatal care journey, you need a team that you can trust. Here at Evie, we offer personalised, multidisciplinary care in a state-of-the-art environment, ranging from consultant care, high-end scanning and prenatal testing, to expert advice on diet, exercise and mental health. Our team of world-class consultants in obstetrics, gynaecology and paediatrics provide the highest standards of care for you and your baby. Contact us today on 01 293-3984 or visit our website at evie.ie for more information. Evie, a game changer in antenatal care. Wow, Katie, that was some interview. I have to say that I actually learned a lot, even at this stage of my career, about normal baby behavior and normal baby sleeping patterns. And I know that it's going to help me give parents better advice when they come and see me in clinic. Absolutely. Don't we wish uh, that we had Lindsay Hookway on our shoulder every day when we meet every client? Yes, absolutely. And if anybody wants more information, they can check out her Instagram page under Lindsay Hookway or her website under lindsayhookway.com. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. We really look forward to welcoming you again in our next episode. See you then. See you next Tuesday.